Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, we began the grand story a couple of weeks ago where Scripture begins. In the beginning, God. Remember that? We examined five evidences pointing to God, cause and effect, law of thermodynamics, theory of relativity, consciousness, and then last week, the fifth one, morality. And... Um, we learned that morality, the sense of right and wrong, is intuitive to humans and can't come from nature or culture. Remember that? We, t- we talked about that. And uh, so it must come from God. We, dedu- we deduce that. Of course, the scriptures tell us that. But our, our culture is hostile towards the scriptures. Wonders if we can come to truth uh, outside of the scriptures as well, and in this case, we can't. Some of some truth we can't. We can't. You can't deduce the Trinity, for example. It has to be revealed to us. Is that true? You can't deduce the Son of God dying on the cross. That's against. You, you know, the world is is revolted by that kind of that kind of a thought. It's revealed truth. But there's many things about God that we, can, that we can also deduce, though they're stated here as well. And that's what we, we've been doing a little bit of in uh, the last couple of weeks. And this, anyway, uh, speaking of the morality, means that it comes from God. And this means that God must be morally good, for he cannot be less uh, than we who he created. Isn't that true? He cannot be less than what he creates. True? Very good. Yet, because of evil in the world today, many conclude that there cannot be a God. And if there is, he can't be good. And here's how they reason. And uh, this is a kind of a summary taken from David Hume, who kind of summarizes a little bit of what uh, Greek philosopher Epicurus said. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? then he is not omnipotent or all-powerful. Did you get that? Is God able but not willing, then he is malevolent or evil or abusive. That's what that means. And then, of course, they had a third proposition. Is he both able and willing, then from whence comes evil? Well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Okay, so here we go. So last week, we learned that God didn't create evil. God, do you remember the word? Allowed evil. Is that true? God set up a tree of knowledge of good and evil in Eden, not to tempt them to evil, but in order to give them a free will and moral choice. Love, which is the universal virtue, the greatest universal virtue, and pretty much everybody would agree with that, cannot exist without free choice. And instead of us being in the image of God, uh, if we didn't have free choice, we'd be reduced to nothing more than a robot. And so, God decided to risk the chance that that humans would make the wrong choice and that evil would be ushered into the universe or into our world As a result, he was willing to risk it in the short term in order that love could reign in the long term or for eternity. 
So God warned them, if they disobeyed, they would come to know evil experientially. And we said it's kind of like breaking any natural law. If you break a natural law, you die, all right? Well, <laughs> or at least you get hurt. Is that true? And uh, similarly, he said, if you break a moral law, you will experience disaster and death. And we know that is true too. Nevertheless, the first couple disregarded the warning and were plunged into chaos as evil entered and messed up a morally very good creation. Remember, he pronounced it very good when he finished. Very good, he said. But what we said last week is that very good doesn't just mean that it looks very nice and works very nice, but it, that it is also morally good. It's very good in every, in every which way. So they, the first couple felt shame, and they began to blame each other. Eve blamed the serpent, Adam blamed Eve, and he even blamed God. Did you know that? He said, the woman you gave me. <laughs> he said, you're the problem. If you hadn't given me that woman, even blamed there. It was the blame game. Started. What did God do about evil once it entered the world? Well, he announced a plan to defeat evil. He promised that a unique seed would rise from the godly line of Eve to crush Satan and his evil seed or following, his descendants. God said he would uh, do that. Sometime that would happen. In the meantime, however, God said mankind would experience a cursed natural world, you know, uh, your birth is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to harvest from the ground. It's going to get increasingly difficult. Uh, and he said, uh, besides that, not only is there going to be a problem between mankind and, the, and nature or the natural world, there will be a problem between humans and humans, enmity or hostility as, as, as we might define it. He said there's going to be hostility between the line, spiritual descendants of Eve and the spiritual descendants of the serpent or Satan. This pronouncement was a major hint that the God-man who we saw there is going to, is going to seed coming out of the seed, is going to fight the, the head of the other one. And we said it's a male. Remember those pronouns and stuff? It's a man. And then and Eve realized it's a God-man. We talked about that last week. And this pronouncement was a major hint that the God-man wouldn't crush Satan's head anytime soon. That was the first hint. There's going to be, there's going to be, there's, uh, there's going to be enmity or hostility between your descendants and his descendants. That tells you right there it's not going to happen now. True? So they, they knew that, uh, you know, their hopes were dashed if they thought that God was going to solve this problem immediately. But it did give them hope. So why didn't God send the God-man right away? Let's just pause for, for one second and answer that question. I mean, why didn't he just... Have you ever wondered that? <laughs> I used to wonder that. And um, I th I've thought about some of these things for years. And, and I thought, oh, God, why didn't you just send him then and that would have solved it? But actually, it wouldn't have. 
First, if he had sent Jesus immediately, that's the God-man, immediately to die on the cross, people would still, would have still continued to sin and do evil just as they do now. Isn't that true? So that wouldn't have solved it. Well, then let's ask about the second advent, when he comes the second time to restore the kingdom, to set up his kingdom. His disciples said, when are you going to do it? Would that have solved it? Well, no, if, if God had sent Jesus to return to set up his kingdom by force, because that's what he's going to do. When he comes back the second time, he's not coming like a little humble baby. When he comes, he's coming as a conqueror, and he will crush Satan under his feet. And Paul says, uh, says the same thing. But once he does, everybody will know for certain this is the one. If he had done that right then, he would have had to set up his kingdom right then, and people would have been coerced or forced to believe in him. They couldn't have chosen. There would have been reluctant people in heaven. Do you see what I'm saying? That's going back to last week's lesson. Does that make sense? So it couldn't happen then. God, God knew all these things. He's... Would you agree he's kind of wise? Would you agree he's very wise? He's incredibly wise. So that's why he didn't do it. God wants people to desire him, so he hides himself slightly, just slightly, so that the careless don't find him. But he has left much evidence like breadcrumbs which lead to him for those who seek him. I'm, I, you know what? I took this verse out, but now I have to go back to it anyway. And maybe we're going to go over time. I don't know, are you going to charge me then? Or are you going to vote me out? Haha, ha, you can't. <laughs> I resigned four years ago. <laughs> all right, it says in verse 26, from one man he made all the nations, this is Acts, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole uh, earth, he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. And listen to this. Though he's not very far away from any one of them. Though he isn't very far. So he just slightly hides himself so that the careless don't stumble upon him. The ones that don't really want him. And the ones who want him, like a Cornelius, he is found. Is that true? Cornelius, the centurion, wanted God. He was worshiping a God he didn't even know. And God finally sends an angel to him and says, go send for this guy called Peter. That's what happens. Do you see what I mean? All right. So what is God doing about evil in the meantime? Well, look at seven things. <laughs> I'm sure there's more, but... And we could... We, this could actually be a, a series, but we don't have time for that. <laughs> so we'll do a series in one, in one message, right? Number one, God limited how much we would ha have to suffer with evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 verse uh, to 23 says, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden. This is right after the fall. Adam and Eve had sinned, and, and God is thinking to himself, oh my goodness, 
we can't let him back in the garden because there's another tree. It's the tree of life. If he eats of that tree in his fallen state, he will live like that forever. And God said, we'll banish him from the garden. And that way he doesn't live forever in that fallen state. That's a merciful act, wouldn't you agree? Now, some people say, um, and, uh, uh, you know, that uh, God banished him from the garden in order that, uh, that uh, Adam and Eve couldn't have fellowship with him. That's not true. In fact, God immediately provided a means by which they could continue having fellowship with him through sacrifice in Genesis you know, chapter 4. That's why they were wearing animal skins. And then right after that, you see Abel and Cain, they're bringing offerings, one of the flock and one of the field. And God provided sacrifice as a means of maintaining fellowship, even though there had been a fall. But he banished them so that they wouldn't have to live in this state forever. And you know what? I am very grateful for that mercy. Are you? I don't want to live like this forever. I don't. I seriously don't. Uh, I, I, want, I want the next state, don't you? Uh, where there's no more sin and uh, no more sorrow, no more aging, no more aches and pains and, and, and hatred and fighting and bickering and warring and rape and murder and Oh my goodness, who wants that? True? True. Number two, God rid the earth of all people. <laughs> or did he? Let's see. Eve gave birth to her firstborn uh, Cain and thought that he might be the promised God-man who had crushed Satan. Maybe this is the one, my firstborn. Maybe that's the one. I waited. <laughs> I waited nine months. Must be time. But alas, he turned out to be a spiritual follower of the serpent when he became jealous and murdered his brother Abel. But God raised up another son for Adam and Eve, Seth, in order to carry on the godly line, the spiritual descendants of Eve. While chapter 4 of Genesis describes the, or gives you the, kind of the genealogy of the descendants of, of, the, of the serpent or Satan, chapter 5 gives us the genealogy or descendants of the godly line uh, coming from Seth. So in the seventh person in the line of Cain was Lamech. He also was a murderer, just like, Cain, uh, just like Cain. But in the seventh line of Seth, you have Enoch, the seventh generation, I should say, in the line of Seth. You have Enoch, and he walked with God. And eventually, but eventually, uh, both lines of Cain and Seth spiraled morally out of control with violence and gross sexual perversions. And it says in Genesis 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. So it got really bad. Lord, Lord was grieved, his heart filled with pain. What should God do about evil? Now, I want to ask you this question, what would you do? And the world tells us, and many people think, you just get rid of the evil people. That'll solve the problem. Just get rid of them. And now we'll have a good world. Well, let's see what God did about that. 
He actually did. God got rid of the evil people. <laughs> he got rid of the really bad people, all of them. There wasn't many left. And, um, and, and then God decided to reboot the human race by destroying the evil people through the flood and restarting with righteous Noah. He actually calls them that, calls them righteous and calls them blameless. He says, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with and he walked with God. God instructed Noah to build an ark to save him and his family. The flood wiped out all of humanity other than Noah and his family, and when Noah stepped off the ark, he worshiped God, offering a sacrifice which was both pleasing and acceptable to the Lord, Genesis 8, verse 20. All social factors that influence people to do evil had been divinely removed. Now humanity would be able to live righteously, right? Apparently not. When Noah offered God a sacrifice, God was pleased and he accepted it. Yet I want you to see what the very next verse says. Chapter 8, verse 21. It says, the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the, the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Wait a minute. Noah hasn't done anything yet. He's just, he's just made a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And then God says this. But wait a minute, doesn't that verse sound familiar? It sure does, because in chapter 5, God had said something almost identical. He said something almost identical. Is it coming up? Yeah, there it is. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, wait a minute. That means he said it right before the flood. We would have expected him to say it there, right? And then the flood takes place. All that you're left with is righteous, blameless Noah and his family of eight, the total of eight. That's all that was on the ark, Scripture tells us. The New Testament corroborates that. And then he says the exact same thing again, almost word for word. Uh, now that should catch our attention because that's, called, that's a literary device that they call the inclusio. I was surprised when I saw it. I went, wait a minute, that's an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device and it's like brackets. Okay, it's like brackets. It says something here, and it says something here that's the same. That means everything in between is commenting on the brackets. That's how, that's how an inclusio works. Okay, do you get that? Does that make sense? That means the entire flood story is referring to those brackets. And those literary devices were a way of not having them to write on clay tablets uh, 
you know, three paragraphs. <laughs> you, just put a, you just put a little bracket around like that, and everybody knows how you use that bracket. And that's how they did it. And so here's what it means. Moses said that man's heart is evil before the flood, and he repeated it again after the flood, God through Moses, because Moses wrote this. He didn't want us to miss the point. God clearly knew that rebooting humanity by wiping out all evil people in the flood wouldn't resolve the problem. But for all eternity, he demonstrated that this wouldn't work. And I had somebody come to me right after service last week and say, isn't, isn't God doing some of these things or holding out because he's teaching us some things for all eternity? I said, yes, that's in my notes. That might be next week. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And he's here today. God clearly knew that rebooting, uh, rebooting Humanity, by wiping out all evil people in the flood, wouldn't resolve a problem. Because the problem was deeper than anyone could have imagined. In other words, you can take out all the bad people in this world, take them all out of this world, and eventually you'll still end up at the same place. That argument doesn't actually work. God tried it. And he didn't try it because he didn't know what would happen. He tried it to prove it to us. And to humanity for all eternity. That's why he did it. Satan wasn't the only problem. So, you know, we have the problem in the, in the garden. Now we find we got another problem. It's the human heart. That's another problem. It's us. And he was proven right, right? Even a righteous man like Noah was shown to have this bent towards sin and evil. Shortly after disembarking from the ark and offering sacrifices, he got drunk and lay around naked. And though we're spared the details, thankfully, Noah's son Ham did something so shameful in connection with his father's nakedness, according to Genesis 9, 20, 23, that it prompted his father to pronounce a curse on his entire lineage. And we see that in Genesis 9, cursed be Canaan, which was Ham's son. Sin hadn't been washed away with the flood, and the sinful heart hadn't been mended. We're right back where we started before the flood. Do you see what I'm saying? We're right back to where we started, before the flood. And now it starts all over. Noah becomes, in a sense, a second Adam. Now, I'm not referring to the second Adam, which is Jesus, okay? Don't, don't worry. Then we'll call that one the third Adam, okay? <laughs> but he is a type of a restart. There's a restart going here. And we notice that it restarts and it devolves immediately. It starts to wind down morally again. But had he... So, the only way that God... Uh, by, by the way, not even a good... Uh, um, so, a flood to rid the world of bad people wasn't sufficient to prevent evil. And not even a good family environment was sufficient to prevent evil. The only way God could have eliminated evil with a flood is if he had also rid the earth of so-called, what? Good people. It's the only way he could have solved it. But if he had got rid of the good people, there would have been no people left. And so he stays with 
so-called good people who are blameless and righteous, but not sinless. He didn't mean sinless, but they're upright in their walk with God. Here's the truth. If God removed bad people, he'd have to remove you and me too. There's the answer. Last week we saw that Adam and Eve's sin wasn't rape, it wasn't murder, it wasn't kidnapping, it wasn't torture, it wasn't adultery, it wasn't incest, molestation, enslavement, and so on and so on. In other words, nobody got hurt. Oh, that's one we hear today, but nobody gets hurt when I do this. Nobody got hurt. I mean, seriously? They ate a forbidden fruit for Pete's sake. No one got hurt, and yet everyone got hurt. And all because someone took one bite of a forbidden fruit. You see, there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't hurt others. That's a lie in our culture. Did you know that some of history's monsters came from homes in which they experienced things like Not the ones that I mentioned, but things like neglect. You know, the dad didn't pay enough attention to them. Abandonment or an absentee kind of father. And they became some of the world's worst monsters. So you'd have to remove that evil too. You'd have to remove those parents that weren't like uh, what we were saying we were going to become for our kids. If you don't do that perfectly, then you got to remove that, that, that generation too. Because it causes that. So you'd have to remove that evil as it contributed to, to the greater evil. And those parents were acting like that in reaction to neglect or stuff done to them. So you'd have to remove that generation too. And the, fo- and the previous generation, and the previous one, and the previous one. You'd have to remove Fran and I. Because there's things that we've done that we didn't think hurt our kids because we did them before we had children. And yet they came back and haunted our family years later. So if if God removed all evil, he would have to remove all of us. All right, what else did, is God, did God do and is God doing? God used judgments to slow the spread of evil. Though the flood didn't eliminate evil, it certainly curbed and slowed it down. That it did. The flood definitely did that because it was a restart. They started over again and it wasn't nearly as bad as what you read just before the flood. And it took a while to wind up again, some generations, but eventually it got there again. And the next thing you know, you're reading in Genesis Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, you're reading about them, the people coming together. God wanted them to spread out over the earth, and they come together and they build a tower into the heavens, and... um, and they disobey God, and they disregard his commands, they don't do what he's saying, and we're right back to where it is, and this time God used a different method. He said he wouldn't use the flood again. So he confused their single language. 
Now that slows things down. Huh? When you can't speak somebody else's language and you're in the same room, uh, do you really need your hands a lot, don't you? Have you ever tried that? And so he confused their languages. That slowed things down, and they moved away from each other, just like he wanted. So uh, here's what I like to say. I, I think we have, there's a double standard in our culture. There's a double speak. On the one hand, many blame God for not doing anything about evil, and they get angry at God. What kind of a God? allows this kind of stuff. Do you ever hear that? And then they turn right around simultaneously and they charge him with being barbaric and unloving when he does something. Which is it? You can't have it both ways. Though many moderns don't believe it, God still uses these methods to keep evil in check today. And I wish we could spend some time there, but we don't. We can't. Okay, what's another thing God did and is doing about evil. God patiently implores people to repent or turn from evil. When God assigned Noah to build an ark, that was an act of grace among the people of that time, and it would take a considerable amount of time and would engender many questions. In other words, the flood didn't come without warning. Some think that it took him over 100 years to build that ark. You know, based on something Lamech, his father, said about 120 years. So, uh, I, I don't know. All I know is that if I was building it, it would take at least 120 years, probably more. You know what I mean? It took a long time. That, in alone, was an act of mercy and grace. Because the whole time he's building it, they're mocking him and asking questions, and he's telling them why he's doing it. That's gracious. Would you agree? And, um, <clears throat> and in fact, so God was very patient and warning. And in fact, Peter comments on this. He says in 1 Peter 3.20, he says, they formerly did not obey. He's talking about the people of Noah's time. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. This implies that had they repented during the construction of the ark, God would have relented from the judgment he was announcing. And we know that God warned the people for, in his second reference to the flood, Peter spoke of Noah as a herald of righteousness. And that was in Second uh, Peter, I think chapter 2, verse 5, or something like that. Anyway, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not like he's looking to trip them up and, boy, if he can just, if he can just hammer them. He's just looking for a way to do it. Far from it. He's the opposite. Ezekiel says, as surely as I live, he recorded what God said, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? <clears throat> that the flood wasn't inevitable, though God had already announced it, can be seen elsewhere. For example, when God spoke to Jonah, he, uh, he, he, to warn the Ninevites of impending judgment. Surprisingly, the people and the king of this very evil city, very evil, 
They turned to God in true repentance. Jonah chapter 3 says, in verse 10, says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He didn't do it. This really upset Jonah. Have you ever heard of a preacher being upset that people repented? So I preach about judgment here, and then people get saved and turn from their sin, and I get ticked off at God. And that those that changed. Well, he got ticked off. Look what he charged God with. Jonah. He says, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry at the Lord. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish. For, that's in Spain, on the Mediterranean. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you were like that. And that's why I didn't want to go. <laughs> because I knew they might repent. And I want them dead. I want my enemies dead. And uh, here God was being charged with being much too good. That's what Jonah was saying. You're way too good. In response to this charge from his reluctant servant, God revealed his heart about the matter. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 souls, it says in some translations, persons, who do not know their right hand from the left hand and also much cattle? Here we gain a wonderful insight into the loving, fatherly heart of God in the Old Testament. However, if they stubbornly persisted in their evil, God would finally bring judgment. He, he couldn't leave evil unchecked indefinitely. We could go through countless stories in the Old Testament like this. I'm thinking of Manasseh, the, one of the most evil kings of Judah, of the 20 in the southern kingdom. One of the most evil. And he repented, and God relented. <laughs> It's incredible. Here's another one. What else is God doing? Number five, God uses evil for higher purposes. When Adam and Eve sinned, Satan thought it was over, that God would have to destroy his good creation, but instead God turned evil on its head and used it to accomplish his good purposes for all eternity. Remember the story of Joseph, uh, where Joseph says, you meant it to his brothers. He said, you meant it for evil. Uh, but God meant it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many, many souls. Remember that one? That, that is exactly what God is like. And I just threw in a few in this list here, but we'll know in eternity because of this. Remember he said in the garden, if you eat of his tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, um, you, will, uh, you, you, will, you will come to know it. And then last week we said, well, they would come to know it experientially. Remember? And they did. But not only that, God turned around and he, they came to know God in a way, in an experiential way that they wouldn't have, uh, they, they wouldn't have known uh, otherwise, not in an experiential way. So the, God takes something that is really bad and he turns it on its head. And they, for all eternity, will know experientially how long-suffering, merciful, gracious, and loving God is. Is that true? 
That's not just propositional truth. It, it happened in history. It happens to us. Pro, it's not just propositional truth. We'll also know how undeserving we are of all this. We'll understand how wise God was in satisfying his love and his justice at the exact same time. On the one hand, he loves us so much that he wants to save us, mankind, and on the other hand, he has to deal with sin, but they come in conflict with each other. How do you do both at the same time? And that's where he came up with the plan of the God-man who would do it in, in, in our place. Jesus, right? We'll hate uh, or we'll understand that mankind, mankind cannot save himself. We'll hate sin forever and we'll love him more because of it. We'll love him more. Fran, Fran's half bionic, but she's, uh, she's got two knees, two new knees, and she's been running around on those for a while now, and she loves them so much. She thanks God. She often tells me, I thank God for my knees every single day. And I'll tell you, we get to heaven, that's exactly what it'll be like. We won't believe what he did. And we'll be so grateful. Okay, uh, number six. God delivered us from, the, from evil at the cross. The greatest example of God using evil for good was at the cross. Though people accuse God of being either evil or impotent, it is not he who should be in the court docket, but we. We are the reason for evil. You want to see just how evil human beings really are? Look at the cross. The cross not only saved us, the cross was a mirror to show us who we really are. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that. People, there were many people who declared that Jesus was good and innocent of any sin. First, the people said Jesus was good. When the religious leaders arrested Jesus in Gethsemane, they couldn't find anything to accuse him of. That was the second one. Judas hung himself saying, I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate's wife warned Pilate, have nothing to do with this innocent man, for she, she said, I've suffered much in a dream uh, because of him. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, like uh, himself, literally washed his hands in front of the crowd saying that he, that he, was, he was innocent. And that Pilate himself was innocent of anything that would happen because he didn't agree. King Herod, who examined Jesus after Pontius Pilate, before Jesus went back to Pilate, examined Jesus and couldn't find any fault. One of the thieves on the cross was mocking Jesus, said, if you're really the Son of God, then why don't you, you know, get us all off the cross? And the other one said, quiet. This man is innocent. He does not deserve to die. He didn't do this. And the centurion who was standing at the cross said, Jesus was righteous. And then finally, all the people after Jesus died, you read this curious verse that says, the people beat their breasts and went away. That's in Luke 23, 48. And Jeremiah 31, 19 gives us a commentary on that, helps us to understand it, and tells us, that when they beat their breasts, they were ashamed that they had that they'd crucified an innocent man. This beating of the breast, that's what it meant. 
They were humiliated and ashamed of what they'd done. They realized what they had done, in other words. And yet, Jew and Gentile alike killed him using the most torturous means possible, crucifixion. They not only tortured and killed an innocent man, they tortured and killed one who had done so much good for so many. But in doing this, they didn't realize that they also fulfilled God's good purposes to deliver us from evil. For our sake, he became, uh, he made him, God made him, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God flipped evil on its head. Mankind was shown, humanity was shown to be the real evil culprit who should be in the docket. Instead, the Son of Man was crucified in his place. And by doing that, God won. And we won. Is that true? Evil thought it had won, but it had lost. God used evil to turn it into something amazingly good. At the cross, God didn't take evil out of the world, but he took us out of evil's grip, Satan's kingdom of darkness, and he took us into the kingdom of light. Are you grateful for that? Is God doing something about evil? Oh, yes, he is. Finally, God will judge evil in the end. The flood not only stopped evil in its tracks, but it also acted as an earnest or guarantee, a down payment, if you like, that one day God will completely judge and eradicate evil once and for all. Referring back to God's flood judgment, Peter said that just like God judged the world by water in ancient times, God would surely judge the world by fire one day. He promised it wouldn't be by water, but it will be by fire. He says, for they deliberately overlook, this is Peter writing, this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the waters, the world that then existed was deluged, that's the flood, with water, and perished. But by the same word, that same word that accomplished that, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness, he's trying to give him hope here, but is patient toward you. We saw that patience in the building of the ark. Many, you know, decades and decades of building this thing. He was patient with him. He's still patient because he wants so many to come to the Lord. He wants them to repent. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? 
repentance. At Jesus' second coming, he will finally take evil out of the world and remake this world into a new heaven and new earth, the universe into a new heaven and a new earth. That's what's coming. In conclusion, the real reason that people get so angry about God, it's not because he's evil, but because they don't want him. That's the reason. Let me quote Thomas Nagel, a professor of New York University, years ago said, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there isn't uh, or there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Listen to me. The ark is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the ark of safety. If you enter into him, if you receive him, you will be safe from the coming judgment. And judgment is coming. Make no mistake about it. It happened in ancient times. And God says it's coming again. Jesus talked about it much. However, he'll only save you if you want it. That's what protects your integrity as a human being and makes love possible. Why don't we bow for a word of prayer? Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you'll be watching this as a recording later on. And I want to address you. You can enter that ark of safety, be safe from the coming judgment, just like Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. Many have already done it. The ark of Jesus is filling up with multitudes who've decided to follow Jesus. If you want to follow him, you can see he's a, he's a morally good God. I just showed you as best I could. And he's a very good God. And he loves you and he's been patient with you. And he, he doesn't blink at your sin and your evil. No, he doesn't blink at it at all. He deals with it. But he dealt with it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he judged him in your place. That's how love and justice come together. But you have to receive it. Why don't you follow me in a prayer? And you can do just that. Dear Jesus, I recognize that you took my sin. In order to be judged in my place, you are that ark of safety. I receive you. I want to enter into you and be safe from the coming judgment. Thank you for what you've done in my place. And Father, thank you. We worship you this morning that you are a morally good 
God. And you are dealing with evil. Contrary to those who accuse and blaspheme your name and call you abusive and evil and wicked and bad, we say to you, and we worship you with our hearts and recognize from experience that you are the very opposite of that. You are good and kind and gracious and merciful and loving and longing for us to turn to you. And we worship you with that knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.